When I was a youth pastor, one of my favorite uh, things were to tell stories about history. And I remember one time I was sharing a story about Abraham Lincoln, and a kid came up to me after service and, and asked me this question. They're like, hey, what, wasn't he the, the, the guy who like, took down all those vampires? And I was like, what, what are you talking about? And he, he proceeded to tell me of this movie of Abraham Lincoln, The Vampire Story, which I've never watched. Uh, I just want to say it, 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 has no, it has no truth behind it, okay? It's just, it's just a fictional story. But today I want to tell you about a story of, of, the, of, of Abraham Lincoln, not the vampire hunter. Abraham Lincoln, the former senator of Illinois who ended up becoming our uh, president here in the United States. But in 1858, Abraham Lincoln was a young man. He was traveling with a thousand other delegates to Springfield, Illinois, for what was the senatorial nomination. They had nominated him to, to represent the Republican Party to run against the then incumbent, Stephen A. Douglas. And he was running, his entire run, his entire campaign was based on this reality that the United States at the time, the Union, was deeply divided. Now for some time they had, they had made great movement in the North to completely outlaw slavery but in the South, it was still a part of everyday life. The Union, for some time, just accepted this reality and just said, hey, you guys do what you do in the South, and, and we'll stay united, and, and we'll just do what we do in the North. It's outlawed here. Until there came a nominal Supreme Court ruling called Dred Scott versus Stanford. And it was this ruling where a man who was technically a slave in the South, a man by the name of Dred Scott was a slave in the South, moved with his then owner to the North where slavery was illegal. Now, he was bringing up this charge saying, hey, I should no longer be enslaved because I am now living in the North. Well, after some major technicalities, it went all the way to the Supreme Court. They overturned the previous ruling, which was he was set, supposed to be set free and the Supreme Court said, well, if they move to the north, it's technically we can't make a law. And, and it was based on a technicality. He went off scot-free. Many northerners were outraged. Abraham Lincoln among them. Saying, how can we continue to be this divided country? After the Dred Scott ruling, what's going to stop other owners from just moving up to the north and bringing slavery up to the north? So out of a, really just a, a, a bit of passion in defense of Dred Scott, he decides to run for senator, and he brings up this beautiful speech where he says what is on many of our flags and many of our uh, memorabilia today, he says, a house divided cannot stand. He was literally saying that if, if we assume that we can stay the United States of America, it will not be for long. He's saying one of two things are going to happen. Either this nation is going to collapse, but it will collapse because we either go fully into slavery or we must go fully into eradicating it. And we know that this one speech, although it lost him the senator seat in Illinois, they decided to reelect the incumbent Stephen A. A. Douglas, but we know, many historians say that this one speech, after it was published and sent across the United States, it rallied the North behind the cause of what Abraham Lincoln, not the vampire slayer, was running for. Today, I, I, I want to bring up this reality of, of unity. 
I want to talk about this need that, that if, if there is division in the house, it cannot stand. In fact, I want to just remind you that this, although it is a great saying, it was not actually Abraham Lincoln who first said it. We first see this said by Jesus, not the vampire slayer, Jesus. We see in Matthew chapter 12, verse 25, Jesus says this. He says, every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation. Every nation, every kingdom, every house, every family divided against itself is brought to desolation. And every city or home divided against itself will not stand. Can I just tell you this morning that the single greatest threat facing the church is not some external outside attack. It's not some external demonic attack. It's internal demonic behavior. The single greatest threat in the church is not an outside force coming in and invading. Jesus told us very clearly that the gates of hell could not prevail against the church. When Peter made that confession of faith that said, Jesus, you are the Messiah, he looked to Peter and said, Peter, you are right. What you say was not revealed to you by man, but revealed to you by God. And he says this, by your profession of faith, you are Peter, the rock. By your profession of faith, the church will stand and the gates of hell will not overcome it. The church is firmly rooted. The church is going nowhere. That is hope for us this morning. But I want to tell you something, that if the church does waver, it will not be by some external demonic attack. It will only be by internal demonic behavior. I'm talking about disunity. In John 17, this is why Jesus was so passionate about disunity or, 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 or removing disunity. He prayed this. Literally, we see in John 17, his, his Olivet prayers, what he's praying on the Mount of Olives. He says this. He's praying for his disciples. And you and I are included in this prayer. He says, I'm not asking on behalf of them. He's talking to God or his Father. I'm not asking on behalf of them alone, but also on behalf of those who will believe in me through their message. You and I. We are recipients of that message. We are we are believers in Jesus because of their faithful witness. He says, I'm praying for them as well, that all of them may be one as you, Father, are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you sent me. He's saying here that simply by us choosing to stay united through the power of the Spirit, that that is our witness to the church I want to tell you this morning, in the series of one another, how we treat one another says more about our faith than anything we claim to believe. How you and I treat each other says more about our faith in Jesus than any amount of doctrine that we would adhere to. By any tattoo of scripture that you wear on your arm. How we treat each other is absolutely important, friends. So today we're talking again about one another. Everybody say one another. One another. This, this series that we started a couple weeks ago where we've said, hey, the word of God uses this phrase one another. In the Greek, it's aleleion. We see this over a hundred times. It's talk and it encourages the church to, to treat another with, with humility, to be united, to, to have a humble disposition, to, to love each other. We see this a hundred times. Love one another. Treat one another with love and respect and, and be united to one another. We see this pray for one another. We, we've been looking at these, these phrases. And today, I want to look at one that we see in 1 Peter. Now, let me just give you some context for 1 Peter. 1 Peter was written. I'll give you, give you one guess. Who do you think wrote 1 Peter? Peter. Oh, good. 
Good. Some, I hope you weren't going to say Paul. Yeah. Peter wrote 1 Peter. Now, Peter was the, uh, honestly, the leader of the disciples. He was, when, when Jesus was navigating his ministry on earth, he was, he was first to arrive, or second arrived to his scene. His brother Andrew took him there. But he was one of the first believers. He was a leader in the church from the very beginning, even till after Jesus was resurrected. He was a leader in the church in Jerusalem. He would go on ministry or missionary journeys as well. Uh, Peter was a phenomenally courageous leader, a great leader. In fact, Peter was writing, he wrote to this church in Rome. We know that church history tells us that once he left Jerusalem and he began ministering, he ended up ministering directly north. As, as Paul moved east and meet, reached many of those people grouped to the east, Peter went straight up north to what is modern-day Turkey. At the time, the Roman Empire had conquered all of, from Arabia all the way to what is like modern-day England. They, they had a, a huge landmass, these imperialists. They had a huge landmass. And we know that Peter was writing specifically to those who lived in the northern region, a group of about 10 countries or nationalities, all under the rule, the thumb of Rome. Now, at the time, Christianity was simply tolerated beforehand, but at this point in time of Peter's writing around 68 AD, the church was experiencing the worst form of persecution. Many of you have read and heard of the Emperor Nero, but we know that the Emperor Nero was a harsh, a harsh emperor. They were greatly persecuted Christians from many nations living under the Roman Empire. We see that Peter clarifies this or acknowledges this in the, in the text. He tells us in 1 Peter chapter 6, or 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 6, he says, In all this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. So he, here he brings up there's, there's suffering grief in all kinds of trials. In, in verse 12 of chapter 4, he says this, Dear friends, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal. The only time that is brought up in the New Testament, this idea of a fiery ordeal. Now, it needs to be noted when he's talking about fiery ordeal, he's not using hyperbole here. He's being very literal. The Christians were literally experiencing the flames and fire of persecution. This church was not just being silenced and told to not preach the gospel. In fact, we have a a Roman historian, a guy who wasn't even a Christian, but he, he tells the history, a guy by the name of Tacitus. I want to show you what he says about what was happening in the exact same time that Peter was writing this. Look what, Nero, or what he says about Nero. He says, therefore, to stop the rumor that he had set Rome on fire, this, is about, this was a time when Rome was burning, Nero wanted to completely renovate, and instead of getting the approval to renovate, he, decide, he decided to set part of the city on fire, so it says this, therefore, to stop the rumor that he had set the Ro Rome on fire, Emperor Nero falsely charged with guilt and punished with the most fearful tortures the persons commonly called Christians. Nero blamed the burning of Rome on the Christians, a group that had very little political power but a lot of influence that he desired to wipe out because they spoke a gospel. To be a Christian is clearly to say that the emperor isn't king. It's not Lord. He's not Lord or Savior. Jesus is king. It was, it was a very radical phrase. They were saying, listen, we, we bend the knee and we submit ourselves to you, but Jesus is our king. He is the one who deserves our worship. 
Not a president, not an emperor. He, Jesus alone, deserves our worship. A very radical thing to have said at the time. So he blamed it on the Christians. In fact, Tacitus even says this, besides being put to death, Christians were made to serve as objects of amusement. Here's where he talks about the literal persecution. They were clothed in the hides of beasts and thrown into coliseums and and torn to death by dogs. Others were crucified. Others set on fire to eliminate the night when daylight failed. This is all written in the annals of Rome, a book that is a very trustworthy source of history on Rome. And here he is saying Nero was persecuting them. The church in 1 Peter was very persecuted. The five nations that were living there, the Christians were persecuted. And I want us to just to understand, what do you say, how do you encourage a church that is facing horrendous persecution? How do you tell them to, to in, engage with one another? He tells us this, love one another deeply. Love one another deeply. We see this in 1 Peter chapter 1. He says it three different times in this text. And I want us just to to emphasize this this idea of love one another deeply. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 21 and 22, it says here, Through Jesus you believe in God, who raised him from the dead and glorified him. And so your faith and hope are in God, now that you have purified yourselves by obeying the truth, so that you have sincere love for each other, love one another deeply from the heart. Love one another. We see again, 1 Peter chapter 3. This is, this is the call for the church, friends. This is our mandate. This is what we are called to do for each other. He says here in verse 8 and 9, chapter 3, Finally, all of you, be like-minded. Meaning, don't allow small differences of opinion to separate you. You can have your own personal preferences, but don't allow your personal preference to be a, a source of division amongst brothers and sisters. He says here, be like-minded, be sympathetic, love one another, be compassionate and humble. In our Western American mindset, we oftentimes conduct lists and we put of what's most important either at the top or the bottom. But what was most common in this day and age, if you were a writer, is you would put what was important right smack dab in the middle. And this is what Peter is doing. He's saying, love one another of utmost importance. He says, do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult. Yeah, I know Rome is treating you horribly, but that's not for us to repay. Vengeance doesn't belong to us. It belongs to the Lord. He says, because to this, or I'm sorry, on the contrary, you repay evil with blessing because to this you were called so that you may inherit a blessing. And then finally, we see in chapter four, and he has, he has some I mean, I heard you go read this. I mean, it'll only take about 30 minutes. But if you read this, he talks about challenging the church to submit themselves to the emperor and submit themselves to the senator, to, to, to not walk around with a chip on their shoulder, but recognizing that God is the one who's going to right every wrong, that there is a day coming when Jesus returns and he's going to restore justice. He tells them to submit themselves one to another. I mean, we see these very radical and and contrarian, especially contrary to to our culture today, that we are to to be submitted one to another. Wives to their husbands, husbands to their wives, that there's this mutual, beautiful submission that we are called to. Then he moves on into chapter 4. He says this, 
the end of all things is near. Has anyone ever gone on a long run? I am. I, I do not. <laughs> yeah, we just. Yeah, we had. We had a, a member of our congregation uh, just run a uh, half marathon in all fifty states. Jen Marshall, if you want to just give a wave real quick, she ran a half marathon in all fifty states. We were able to celebrate and congratulate her last week. So, I mean, or, or this past weekend, she did a great job. So she knows what it means to run a long race. I'm not a runner. <laughs> I, I told Jen, I only run if there's a ball involved, and even then, I'm not that great at it. Uh, I, I'm not a fan of it. I think it's because when I was growing up, running was always a punishment. Like, if you're playing sports, you mess up, get on the line, and you got to run. So, like, I've always just carried that with me, like, oh, I hate running, it's punishment. Uh, but anyway, I'm, I'm not a fan of running. But there is something that happens inside of me. I, I, I think I've ran a few 5Ks, but there is something that happens inside of me when I recognize that the finish line is within eyesight. Has anyone ever experienced that? You get this like sudden burst of energy and somehow your legs just like, they just like get stronger and you're able to go faster. Like I just, I, I've ran a few races and, and I, if, as soon as I see the finish line, I just look around me and I'm going to say, I'm going to beat you, I'm going to beat you, I'm going to beat you. I'm like super competitive and running is not that. You got to just compete against yourself, but that's not the way I'm wired. Like, so I love competition. So I'm looking around and I'm just like sprinting harder. There is something that happens when you see the finish line. And in this passage is as Peter is trying to encourage this, this very persecuted church, he says this, the end is near. There's a finish line. And somebody passive-aggressively said, yeah, because we're dying. And Peter said, no, brother, no. I'm talking about Jesus coming again. The end of all things is near. Today, if you're looking for just some self-help manual of how to be a better person, I'm here to tell you the gospel is much deeper than that. We believe and it hold to this sharp reality that our King Jesus didn't just come once to give us a get-out-of-hell-free card, but he is coming again to restore his kingdom in full. And we hold that to be our hope. The Bible tells us this. Some of you are like, man, it's been over 2,000 years. What's going on? The Bible tells us this. In fact, Peter writes in his second letter to this church because people are like, yeah, when is he coming? It's been about 40 years now. <laughs> Imagine how we feel. But anyway, um, I said, when is he coming? And, and, and Peter responds brilliantly. Because maybe you've been there like, is he really coming or is this just a, a bit of hogwash? I don't, no one says that, but I just I thought it. Anyway, uh, he writes this. He says, the Lord isn't slow in keeping his promises, as, as some understand slowness. The reason why he hasn't come is because he is being patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but to all to come into repentance. The reason why Jesus has not come back is because he's hoping some of us say, Jesus, I need you. He's faithful. So he says this, the end of all things is near. Therefore, be alert and of sober mind so that you may pray. Above all, love one another deeply. What does the persecuted church do? Love each other deeply because love covers over a multitude of sins. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. I almost said gambling. Each of you... <laughs> Each of you should use whatever gift you have received to serve others, not to serve yourself, not to fill your own belly. But what are we called to do as recipients of this great love and, and a, a knowledge of, of the, the end being near? To serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. If anyone speaks, they should do as one who speaks the very words of God. 
If anyone serves, they should do so with the strength of God provides. Next Saturday, we are going to be serving with all of God's strength the community of Wichita. As of right now, we have 72 people signed up to volunteer at our convoy event. That, okay, there it is. There it is. That is something to celebrate. But I, I don't know about you. I'm, I'm a goal setter, and, and I, always, I always get upset when I don't reach my goals. Am I the only one that's like that? I would love for us to get 26 more people to say we're going to show up, and we're bringing our neighbors just to get that. We, we would love to have 100 people. Right now, as of right now, we're going to take our offering later at the end of our service for our Convoy of Hope. But one thing that we, I want to let you know is something to celebrate. We are already at $2,600. We've already raised $2,600 for our, for our goal for that before an offering has been taken. So, uh, but we are called to, to serve and to speak. Why? So that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. To him be the glory and the power forever. Amen. In this short little verse, in these couple of verses here, I want to just bring up four ways that we are to have a deep love. Everybody say deep love. He says love one another deeply. To have a deep love means to love at full strength. To love at full strength. I am constantly neurotic about making sure my phone is all, like always charged. Like I, I don't even like seeing it at, at like 78%. Like that just bothers me. So I got to throw it on the charger. And I know some of you tech geeks are like shaking your head and you're like, it's good for batteries to deplete a little, a little bit. It extends its life. I know those things, but I just, I love when things are fully charged. I love being able to go. So you never know when you're going to need your flashlight, right? Like I don't want that to go out of me when I'm like taking a, a late walk in the forest. I don't, who does that? Nobody. But I love when, when, I love when things are at full strength. And here, Peter is saying to the church who's being persecuted, who is on the, on the verge of teetering into a, a, a depression, division, and disunity, he's saying this, love at full strength. Love those who are persecuting you at full strength. Love your neighbors at full strength. Love the church at full strength. Yeah, it may be easy to pick people's character apart. And, and even in this time, there were people in the church who are being paid to, to rat others out and say, yeah, they're a Christian, go ahead and arrest them. And Peter was admonishing the church saying, I love them anyway. Forgive them and love them anyway. And here we're going to see just four things of how we are to love each other deeply. The first thing that Peter tells us is this, know the time. Notice that he starts off with this, the end of all things is near. Friend, if I told you that you had a week left to live, I can guarantee you that you would not live next week the way you lived out last week. Because when we know we are operating on borrowed time, we tend to love a little bit deeper. We tend to love and forgive a little bit easier. We tend to make sure things don't go unsaid. And here, Peter is trying to tell the church, and likewise us, time is short. The Bible tells us that we know not the hour or the day when Jesus will return. He will come like a thief in the night. Friends, I'm here to tell you we still don't know the hour or the day. There may be people who try to pull out their, their eschatology charts and say, well, it's going to be around. We don't know the hour or the day. His arrival can come at any moment. It's imminent. But I want you to know 
we are to love as if he's coming tonight. So he starts off, the end of all things is near. Therefore, be alert and so, of sober mind so that you may pray. Look what Paul says to the Roman church. He says, this is all more urgent for you to know how late it is. This is all the more urgent for you to know how late it is. That time is running out. Wake up for our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. He says, the night is almost gone. The day of salvation will soon be here. So remove your dark deeds like dirty clothes and put on the shining armor of right living. That sin that you have been tolerating because it's held you down for years that you have just said, I'm going to live with this. Paul and Peter are saying to us, these apostles in the faith are saying, get rid of it. Time is running out. Don't let anything hold you back. The writer of Hebrews, we saw what he, what he told us last week, to set aside everything that holds us back and look to the prize of Jesus because his drawing is near. Jesus is coming, friends. We see this again. Love, friends, comes easier when you realize that time is short. My son August recognizes this. Whenever we go visit my, my mom who lives in Chicago, we'll go, and he is kind of like daddy. He'll go with a list of objectives that he wants to do with, with Ita, his, his, his grandmother. He has a long list, and by day four, He'll look at his, at his list and be like, I, I'm not even close. I still have to do this and this. And we have to read and we have to play with Play-Doh and we have to eat snacks and we have to eat smoothies because Ethan makes the greatest smoothies. And he's like bringing all these things up. And he, and he understands in his little mind that we've got a week to see and we've got to cram it all in. What would happen to us, to our love? We would not see a seat empty because we're so painstakingly passionate about making sure nobody goes without hearing the gospel. He says, no the time. How do we love deeply? We know the time. We're aware of the time. Secondly, how do we love deeper? Man, we pray together. Can I, can I just tell you that something will happen in your relationships the moment you humble yourself and begin to pray with others? There is a new level of intimacy, of, of depth that takes place when you can go up to a friend and be like, yo, let's pray. Or you can just give them the look and they look at you and you're like, yeah, we need to pray. Let's pray. There is something that happens, friends, when we become men and women of prayer. When the church becomes a praying church, powerful things happen. I want to tell you what he says here. He says, look, in verse 7, he says, look, the end of all things is near. Therefore, as a result of that, be alert and of sober mind so that you may pray. So that we may pray. This idea of being in constant communication with others towards God. That's what prayer means, to literally be in conversation with God. Can I tell you this, that prayer brings us in tune to the heart of God? If you find it difficult to love people or to give forgiveness, if you find those things difficult, can I just say this, prayer brings us in tune to the heart of God and reveals his love for people? There have been times, I'll just be completely honest, there have been times where I've dealt with like many of us, have dealt with just a difficult individual. And I remember one time going to a mentor of mine. I was a young pastor, and I went to a mentor of mine just saying, man, this individual is just giving me a hard time. And, and I'm just like, kind of at the time, I realized now, like I was, I was really just speaking disparagingly about this person. Man, I just can't stand them and this and that. And, and then like I just start nitpicking. They dress funny. 
you know, their hairs, like, I'm just like, like, it just like got worse and worse and worse. Like little things that are non-issues become big issues because I'm, I'm holding on to a deep hurt and offense. That's what happens. It makes mountains out of molehills. That's what offense does to us. When we don't handle biblical or conflict biblically, we just hold on to offense. And I was doing that. I'm bringing this up to a pastor. He said, hey, when was, when was the last time you prayed for them? And I'm like, never because they're dirty and stink. Like, it's like, he's like, dude, let's pray for them right now. And I kid you not, as I began to pray for them, the Lord began to reveal to me that this person who was causing me deep harm and hurt, he started just un- re- revealing to me just this heart of empathy that this person is hurting as well, that hurt people oftentimes hurt people. I just want to let you know that when we live out from, of, of a mind frame or a framework that, that recognizes that Jesus is coming near, it will lead us to pray for people, and that will help us to love them deeper. Third, we are called as a result of this. And look, look how Peter is just naturally building this out. Look at number three. We are called to be quick to forgive. Everybody say quick to forgive. He says this, know that the time, this is the kind of, he's building this foundation, know that the time is near. He says, pray together. And when you pray together, you will be quick to forgive. The Bible says, don't let the sun set on your anger. Settle matters quickly. If you're holding on to an offense this morning, friends, my challenge to you is to forgive that person. And I'm not telling you to call them up right now and say, hey, just want to let you know, I was really offended by you, but I forgive you. And they're like, oh, thanks? Like, I had no idea. Sometimes forgiveness is just in the heart of like, Lord, help me forgive. Help me get over this, Lord. Now, I am saying if, if, if there is sin involved and they have sinned against you, I'm not just talking about offended you, but if, if there is sin involved, forgive them. A radical notion. 1 Peter 4, 7 says this, The end of all things is near. Therefore, be alert and of sober minds that you may pray. Above all, love one another deeply because love covers over a multitude of sins. And we know it was the love of Jesus that sent him to the cross, that he poured his, himself out, that his blood covers over all sin. But here it says that forgiveness love covers over a multitude of sins, over many sins. It's not saying that we overlook sin. Love does not mean that we ignore, that's what Bruce Barton said, love does not mean we ignore, overlook, or hide sin. But we use love as a shock absorber, cushioning and smoothing out the bumps and irritations caused by sin. Who do you need to forgive today? Or who is it that you needed to ask for forgiveness? Friends, when we love deeply, forgiveness comes quickly. The writer of Ephesians says this, get rid of all bitterness, rage, anger, harsh words, and slander, as well as all types of evil behavior. Instead, be kind to each other, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, just as God, through Christ, has forgiven you you are thankful for the forgiveness of, of God. But there was no holding period where he said, all right, you're going to get a good 10 weeks and we'll come back and we'll revisit in 10 weeks and see how this forgiveness is working if you're in keeping with this. No, no, no. What did, what did he do? 
What else has he lavished his forgiveness upon us? Lavish means to slather it up. That's like the best way they can transliterate that into English. Lavish means to slather. Kind of like what I do with my barbecue. I'm all over. Forgiveness. Just lavished it on us, Jesus. In turn, we are called to do the same. Completely thrown off by this command, the disciples asked them, how many times, Jesus? Like 77? That was the highest they could count. Just kidding. No, that, that was... That was a number of perfection, a number of completion. They asked him, like, 77? That's, that's the Lord's number. They took that literally, and Jesus said this, hyperbically speaking. Uh, he says, 77 squared. If they ask for forgiveness, forgive them. Why? Because your Father has done the same to you. A sign of deep love is the ability to forgive to not hold something against another. Psalm 103.12 says this, how does God forgive? As far as the east is from the west is as far as God has removed our sins from us. It's a paradox. The east and the west never touch. It's impossible. By definition, the east is the east, the west is the west. And that's exactly what the writer is trying to tell us, that the love of God is paradoxical to anything that makes logical sense. It would make no sense that a heavenly, perfect God, creator, and king would forgive men and women who decided to say, Lord, we are going to do our own things. We will define our own truths. We will go our own way. But the moment we are aware of our sin and our wrongdoing, we come to him with humility and say, Lord, forgive me. He doesn't repay us back as we deserve. He forgives, friends. In turn, you and I are called to love deeply to forgive deeply and quickly. And I end with this. We are to be hospitable and serve. Look what he says in verse 10. And notice how he's building this up. He says we are to know the time, which I know the time. we got about five minutes. We are to pray together. We are to be quick to forgive, and we are to be hospitable and serve. Can I encourage you this morning? One of the greatest ways for us to love one another deeply. Maybe you're like, all right, pastor, what, what, is, what is the practical next step for me? What is the action step for me this morning? I want to love deeper. My challenge to you is we have this perfect opportunity on Saturday for us to serve. And you may be saying, hey, I, I, really, I really don't know anyone yet. I'm not fully convinced that this is where I'm at. I'm halfway in, halfway out. Or maybe you're like, hey, I, I'm not physically fit. Can I, can I just tell you, I had someone come up to me thinking uh, that we were going to be doing a lot of running around at the Convoy of Hope event. Uh, and, and they don't have the, the physical strength to do so. Can I, can I just say, if you could stand, or I'm not even stand, if you could sit and wave at somebody, we could use you. Why? Because we have so, we're expecting thousands of people whom we have never seen before. We are expecting them to come through our, our campus. And, and if you could just wave and love on them, that is enough. Or maybe you're saying, like, logistically, I just, I just can't be there. My challenge to you is, is to give. Both things matter to God, serving and giving. Look what he says here. He challenges the church who's being persecuted. He says this, hey, each of you, 
In verse 10, each of you should use whatever gift you have received to serve others. Let's just pause there in our closing moments this morning. That means I can't be selective in what I say is worthwhile to others. That means everything, whatever gift I have received, is there anything that I currently have that is solely mine? Right? Some would say, well, I, I worked really hard for the talent that I have. I spent endless hours studying and researching. My question to you would be, who gave you the oxygen to even conduct that? Everything we have is from God. And I'm not trying to downplay hard work. Work hard. Study hard. Study to show yourself approved before God and man. The word's very clear. But let's just be humble in this moment and recognize everything I have. The car that I drive, the house that I live in, my children, my finances, everything, Lord, I've received, my talents, my strengths, my shortcomings, where I need to humbly rely on the strengths of others. You've given it to me, God. And he tells us this, each of you, not just the pastors, not those who are just wired with, you know, extroverts, all of us, each of you should use whatever gift you have received to serve others as faithful managers or stewards of God's grace in its various forms. And he tries to make an all-encompassing list by saying, if you can talk or if you can act. Look at, if any one of you speaks, they should do as one who speaks the very words of God. If any one of you serves, uses their hands, you should do so with the strength of God provides. Nobody is without purpose here. So that in all things, through all people, in every church, God may be praised through Jesus. We are all called to love deeply. We are all called to love deeper, to know the time, to forgive quickly, and to be hospitable and to serve. Can we stand together? Father, thank you so much for this church. Thank you so much for all that it is that you are doing. Thank you for our time together. Thank you that every good and perfect gift comes from you. And Father, we stand not because we are we still got to take our offering, but we're standing to just kind of posture ourselves in such a way that says, Lord, I, I want to make myself available. Lord, if there's anybody in this room who is yet to say, Jesus, I'm going to serve you all the days of my life, I pray today they would make that decision. If there's anybody in this place that is maybe harboring an offense against someone else. Lord, I pray that today forgiveness would reign supreme. There's not enough time. If there is someone who hasn't looked at the clock in a while, I pray that today they would recognize it says that Jesus is coming. Father, there is so much happening around us. I pray that we would not be distracted. I pray that this church would keep its eyes focused and fixated on the horizon. Jesus, you are coming. May our love display it. 
Father, I pray over the men and women of this church who may, may just be brand new, who are still trying to figure things out. May we love and welcome and extend belonging because that's what you do to us. And Father, I pray that you and I or us in this church. Father, I pray that we would be hospitable and serve one another. Help us, Jesus. In your name we pray. And if that's your prayer, will you just say amen this morning? Amen. Amen. You guys may be seated. Ushers, if you want to come forward, we are going to go ahead and take our Convoy of Hope offering right now. And I'm going to pray over it really quick. Father, bless this offering. Thank you so much for all that it is that you're doing. We are expecting so many people next week. We are partnering with eight other locations in the city of Wichita to do the impossible, which is to extend love and hope to the city of Wichita. Not just one location, eight places all across the city coming together that say Jesus is the hope of the world tangible ways. God, we are going to be giving food and resources and backpacks. Help us, Lord. This offering, may it go to advance that vision that you've given us. Thank you for every generous individual in this place who's given. Maybe someone can only give to, towards one backpack $10. Father, I know that you will bless them. And to those who can can afford and take that step of faith and say, I will do more. Father, I know that you will just as equally bless them. Help us in this. In Jesus' name we pray. Everyone said, amen. Amen. Let's go ahead and give.